I feel like no one who plays a hundred hour long RPG can say they're casual. <laughs> right, but I'm shit at it. I don't play it on the hardcore mode. I don't go for all the achievements and stuff like that. Am I just, you know, a guy who's in it to, you know, play around for the story? You haven't hit the recording yet, right? <clears throat> I may have just hit the recording like two seconds ago. Ah, okay. okay. Right. So, yeah, so... I, I consider myself in some respects to be a filthy casual because I haven't dumped 500 hours into Counter-Strike or something like that or other games that are kind of part of geek culture. Yeah, um, but I would not... I mean, I, if you consider that to be hardcore, that's like, I feel like 10% of the gaming population. I don't think that, that. Yeah. If that, I feel like that's like neck beard basement dwellers. Like that's like, that's like beyond, (laughs) that's like, that's like beyond hardcore. That's like, but I'm well aware that they have in many ways, kind of more street cred than I do. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not hung up about it, but, um, I definitely have a lot of friends. You sound a little jealous. Yeah, a little maybe, but, (laughs) I, like, I don't, I don't begrudge them having ever. spent that time and the skill that they get with it, but at the same time, I tried not to feel inferior about the fact that they could own me in a second in any FPS game. So, You know, language is what you make it, kind of. But on the other hand, I think words do need to have fairly stable meanings, and that just isn't what people mean when they say casual gamer now. Right, that doesn't mean people who play age. Yeah, I mean, like, it just it just doesn't mean that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the fact that gaming has become so much more mainstream, the definition of casual gamer has become more, even like, even more casual. <laughs> if yeah, like, right, it's come diluted exactly. too. Yeah, yeah, I probably, I, and I, I mean, I'm I'm perfectly willing to roll with that. You know, it's it's just label like heterosexuality and homosexuality <laughs> and that it's really a spectrum of casualness from zero to six, you know, Kinsey, <laughs> Kinsey casual. Um, but Well, I think we might even need to pull out multifactorial equations for this one because uh, I was thinking about this today. Um, some gamer friends of mine um, have said that there's sort of the, the trifecta and finding people who are into video games, board and games, and sort of table RPGs or other tabletop games. Holy grail. The, like they can find you know people who are interested in one or two, but finding someone who's interested in all three is like finding a unicorn in the wild for them. <laughs> um, so... I mean, are, so, are those the true well, gamers? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of intrigued. Why, why is that so valuable? Well, I mean, for them, it's a matter of these people share a, an, all of my interests or an inclination enough to all of my interests that there's not any particular activity that I can't engage in with them. Um, like for them, I mean... Unless they're, unless they're a douche. Right. But again, especially if you're growing up as a gamer and you have a relatively niche collection of nerds around you, the whoever happens to be in your geographic area and go to your school, um, it can be hard to be interested in, um, like, Dungeons & Dragons. I kind of have to drag Mm -hmm. disinterested friends along to your hobby. Um, I've been that disinterested friend. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so as as one of the the unicorns who who kind of plays all three, um, there's a huge stack of magic cards um, behind me um, left over from when a bunch of friends came over. 
I keep um, I keep thinking of this like sexually when you keep saying like the unicorn. I keep thinking of like the, bis- the bisexual <laughs> female who's willing to who's willing to have a threesome. <laughs> See, they almost certainly weren't thinking of that because the gamers who who defined this term for me were all straight. Um, they would probably have been a little too excited about the alternative meaning of. But that is uh, a and- really good turn of phrase, though, or a metaphor. The unicorn, yeah, the weird bisexual woman un- as unicorn thing. Yeah. Like it's sort of, I feel like it's sort of on the one hand kind of demeaning and terrible, but on the other hand, really accurate and quite funny. I feel like it's yes, almost it uplifting is. though. Like if you are a bisexual female who is willing to have a threesome with a man and a woman, like that's you're seen as like this mythical, a ma- a mythical yeah. amazing creature that just you know everyone wants to see and meet in <laughs> real life you know yeah i just imagine them walking down the street going hello here i am <laughs> you know just like gracing everyone with their beautiful aura or something <laughs> very odd yeah although amy schumer uh compares giant dicks to being unicorns because she's like in theory you're like oh i would love to meet a unicorn but then when you're in person it's like ah they have a giant weapon on their forehead i'm running away right now (laughs) yes no and i feel like that's totally true actually yeah Um, i certainly know that i have met a dick too lit too big (laughs) for sure me as well yes it does happen there are big there are dicks that are too big Oh, I wish I could see. I wish we could compare hand sizes right now to just be like, whose whose big dick was biggest? No, no, we don't want that. This is why we need a vi- This is why we need a video. Other people's dicks. We we need a video podcast for this. <laughs> it's not like I'm gonna say, oh, it was Garrett's. <laughs> Oops, did I? I didn't, or did I? Hello, and welcome to The Gamers Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Vasquez, and I'm here again with Mike. Hi. And joining us for the first time this week is Kevin. Hello. Hey, guys. So, uh... Very assertive hello. My goodness, I'm... I think I peed myself a little bit. Yeah, keep your panties on. (laughs) Mike, your hello always sounds like you're questioning why you're here. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I find it very hard to say hello naturally in a way like that, like a, in a situation like this. Mm-hmm. Much in the same way, I find it very hard to sit, like, smile naturally in a picture. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's the not hardest time with that. Yeah. I mean, it isn't natural. I mean, that's the thing is, this is right. basically a radio show, so it's not natural. Exactly. I have to learn. This is the second time I've done it. No worries. No worries. So I'll be, better, I'll be better next time. I'll be. Better. I mean, you can re-record yeah. it because I can always. Don't hate me. Do you want to no. do your hello again? I can. Nope. Re- Keep going. <laughs> Don't you dare. I can edit it. I can edit <laughs> Don't it. Subject him to that awkwardness again. <laughs> okay, fine. Okay, so first we wanted to talk about casual gaming and the changing demographics of gaming. So, uh, I know last week we mentioned a little bit 
uh, we I know last week we started to get into a debate about Evan's mom <laughs> and how she's not really a casual gamer, even though he claimed that she was. Um, yeah, well, what when you start playing games like what was she playing? Dragon Age and uh, she played she played Dragon Age Inquisition and Mass Effect. Yeah, I mean. I don't know if I'd necessarily call her like some extreme hardcore gamer, but she's definitely not a casual gamer. I mean, it's all semantics and it's debatable, but. Um, Well, it's funny because I consider myself a casual gamer in many ways um, because I play a lot of like games like Dragon Age and um, Mass Effect where there's this vast like completionist hardcore way to play the game that I just by default ignore um you know there are thousands of quests and it's so such a huge game in so many ways that i don't feel like i can i don't feel confident in doing i won't have as much fun playing the game that way and so i play on like normal or sometimes even casual playing modes um and consider myself a casual gamer in that respect um even though now the definition of casual gamer is much more expanded because of you know smaller much more niche games like Angry Birds that my grandmother can play with my little cousins just because it's on a tablet and it's easy and it's fun and simple. Um, and that that is usually what one someone what someone means by a casual gamer. The definition has changed a little bit. But I wouldn't consider myself more hardcore as a gamer just because of the types of games I play. It's also because of how I play them. Right. Wouldn't and- you, though... Wouldn't you? I mean, you just you just told me that you've played. How long did it take you to finish one of those Bioware, Western style RPGs? Last one you played, how long? Uh, I'd have to pull up Steam and check, probably. Guess. But th- for me, I often do the like up to 120 hours of gameplay. I okay. put out at 20 or 30, which is a lot of time. Sure. Oh, okay. but... I thought you were saying I thought you were saying you hit the 120 hours. No, no, I, oh, okay. I often don't. Okay. I often am nowhere near that, um, which is why, why, why a lot of people would say, you know, not filthy casual necessarily, but definitely casual gamer. Um, even though I have this, you know, glowing obelisk of PC, you know, gaming titan masculinity underneath my desk, um, I'm not playing, you know, fast twitch Counter-Strike Go or something like that late at night, and I never really have been. Um, so I, I don't know, I guess the, the, the demographic of what is and isn't a casual or hardcore gamer seem to be shifting underneath our feet in a lot of ways. Well, I feel like there's two elements to that one and you can jump in anytime, Michael. Um, well, I just, so I was just going to say, so basically you just want all the street cred of being a gamer without the actual effort is what you're saying. I, maybe I do. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy my hobby without having to like prove to anyone else necessarily that being a gamer means I need to spend all of my weekend burning through the particular niche elements of the Western wastes in you know Dragon Age Inquisition. I mean, am I less a gamer for instead going out and having a few beers or instead playing Magic the Gathering with my friends? Well, I no, you're not allowed to go out and have a few beers. You have to spend that time playing whatever game you're playing have the beer grind, while you grind. play the game with your friends that's that's you don't way. have enough time for friends you have to dedicate that's it right. all to gaming 
and at, and with each word we scrape closer and closer and closer to the apex gamer. Right. Well, I think it, this is one of those weird things. So like, I have a real hard time saying that anyone who plays a massive open world RPG, whether they are an achievement whore who does every last thing or not is casual. I have a hard time saying that person is casual compared with someone who plays to use our favorite example from before flappy bird um, <laughs> because to me, it's partly a matter of, and even though you could spend the same amount of time doing either one, you're Poor, poor brain and eyes if you spent 100 hours playing Flappy Bird, but whatever. Um, I think the mechanics matter a little bit, too. Like, Flappy Bird or Angry Birds, anyone can play. You said before that, like, you know, it involves physics that a kid understands and they're starting to learn, right? Well, that's a lot different than, like, navigating the complex, you know, morality and decision-making involved in you know, these different choices and then leveling up your classes and all that stuff. So I feel like there's a certain amount of, like, not being casual you have when you just have sufficiently complicated mechanics. Like, for instance, no one who ever plays the board game Twilight Imperium is a casual gamer. Ever. <laughs> well, it's funny you would say that, because the only time I've ever played Twilight Imperium it was with a bunch of much more gaming-inclined friends, Mm -hmm. um, and my brother, because we were we were down a person, and my brother was in town, and was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And while we've played like Axis and Allies and other str like strategy board games before, um, Twilight Imperium was on like a whole other level for both of us in many Ain't ways. That the truth. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it's a, it's a nightmare of a game. You have to like. There are some games you can set aside a whole day for Twilight Imperium. You kind of want to set a whole that first day aside for learning the rules. Um, and for, those, like, for those of the listening audience who don't know, uh, what it is is it's a giant game that sort of simula simulates like all of like space empire conquest sort of stuff, and that makes it sound like it's a war game, but it's really not. But it does literally take all day. They suggest that you have one hour per number of players, and you're supposed to play with six people. I've never had a game that ended in less than like ten hours. So, yeah, well, you have to stop to you know eat and breeze and poor, things poor like that humans yeah bio breaks get in the way um but in any event like I, he would not necessarily consider or you play in your basement your mom's basement and she comes and brings you snacks it, that's the proper way to do it that's how they got the six hour number i suppose that's true <laughs> and she changes the bedpans too for all the players yes <laughs> I, I just I just picture, you know, like that episode of South Park, you know, when they're all in the basement playing WoW. Oh, that's know. hard God. not to. That's, they that's about, it's that's so about what it's like, that game. I, mm. Anyway. And the WoW expansion came out recently. It did. Y yay? Yay for yay. those people <laughs> who dedicate all of their lives to WoW. We're very proud for Blizzard and for all of the souls they command. <laughs> I have to say, I, I don't, I played that, for, I played WoW for one year, basically, and um, I, this expansion at least seems like the kind of content I would want if I were playing it, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I only played it for a few months, and then I just, I was like, this is so much time and effort that is required for this. 
Well, it's it's funny that it's funny that this has come up now with the casual versus not casual thing because what mm-hmm. made me stop was even though I was at that time on that server like one of the best geared people of the class I was, I didn't I was at the point where I was frustrated by people who didn't play the game enough to know how to do some of the dungeony kinds of things mm-hmm. but if i wanted to keep playing i needed to like join one of the big and i actually got an invite to like the one of the best guilds or whatever but of course they want you to structure your life around NBD. playing the game and i didn't really want to structure my life around playing the game so i wasn't hardcore enough <laughs> right well and it's funny because a lot of these hard like a lot of these guilds and things like this, and I, I played EVE online for about a year, um, a lot of these guilds have logistics management and things like that on the order of a full-time job. Well, in EVE, you'd have to. Right. It's, it's EVE is like your second life that you pay for, um, <laughs> which is and lose one real of many reasons game. why I don't play anymore. Um, but it's it's funny because I a lot of the people that I played with were in many ways more logistically on point than the like where I work um, which granted is in a very bureaucratic office that you've never heard of but you know the these guys were more committed to the scheduling and timing and like the skill of running an op and eve like running a raid in wow um, than I would ever be I think even though I'm a relatively you know clever person and good organizational skills as long as you don't look at my desk I swear your desk was perfectly neat on Saturday, so I feel like you're exaggerating. Do you just not see paperwork? Because it's everywhere. Sorry, anyway. Um, I, I I've never I, seen your work desk. That's a fair point. <laughs> that's covered in paper. Well, actually, I, so I think Kyle, who was on episode one, or the second episode of the podcast, I think actually he plays WoW, and because he, <laughs> when we were getting ready to record the podcast, he was like, oh, sorry, I was busy uh at the raid so <laughs> i'm sure he has lots to talk about that but right well and it's interesting that like developers have to be aware of this split fan base in some mm-hmm. ways like the an expansion has to be in some ways for the whole player base or at least for a large enough chunk of it for people to feel like they aren't being neglected mm-hmm. um yeah, and, and it's especially with ongoing online games like that which are in many ways, a segment of the market unto themselves. Um, if you're not kind of developing for everyone, why are you developing for just a small subset? Um, and there could be good reasons, like the fact that they pay all of your bills. Um, but it also means you kind of can get like this narrowing death cycle of we only develop for the hardcore gamers, therefore there's no point in being anything but a hardcore gamer in this game. And so on and so And that's sort of what Eve, in many ways, started to feel to a lot of people, which is why it's kind of an on-again, off-again relationship with most Eve, Eve players and CCP. I talked yeah, to my, my understanding, because both, both of the people who I live with have played or did play until recently WoW, um, one of them from, like, the very beginning, actually. And they seem to have done like the perfect storm where they seem to have made it suck for both sets of people (laughs) and so that's not that's not really a recipe for success 
Well, it's hard. I mean, it's it's a creative pursuit and a technically difficult pursuit and right. all the rest, and it's game balance. Like some of these MMOs employ like legit PhD economists to just try and keep everything running. Which is a scary thought because that might be more thought than they put into our financial system. Yeah, I was just thinking, but that's not what they went to school for. But <laughs> bet no one ever thought, hmm, that's what I'm going to wind up doing. That's what the game theorists were all on about. <laughs> Perhaps. It would make sense, you know, given the financial crisis. But um, back to demographics of gaming and all of that. I mean, is there such a thing? Does there have to be a game for everyone? Like, literally everyone? Mm-hmm. Um, or can we have kind of a fragmented base, I guess? I mean, we do now. Sort of. I mean, are you, are you asking if it's a laudable goal to make something that has mass appeal in a very broad-based way? I don't know. Maybe we should ask marketing. Like, I, I don't know. I think that games are such a great bonding experience for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if you're only bothering to bond certain segments of, you know, the total, you're always being a little selective. It asks questions maybe about who is gaming really for, and that starts getting to things like Gamergate, which is terrifying. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, I mean, you have the issue, like you were mentioning with WoW, where you have this perfect storm of, oh, this is a mediocre experience for everyone. I mean, that's that's <laughs> yeah. that's the problem with when you try to do something that's like a jack-of-all-trades, it's, you know, jack-of-all-trades, master-of-nothing kind of thing, where you have this, uh, you, you have this large attempt to bring together large you know varying groups and uh, and interests you know in a game you know if it's a big mmo or something and then you kind of try to cater to both the casual quote-unquote and the quote-unquote hardcore base and then you end up with this weird mishmash that doesn't work and is kind of just a mediocre experience for everyone um and then you know if you have this very t- narrow target for a game, you may be able to create this awesome experience for this one particular niche group, which is good for that group. But I, I do see your point in that, well, I mean, do we want to just separate out all of these different communities in the gaming world? Do we, Or do we want to try to bridge the gap between some of these areas? I mean, there could be you know, good opportunities for that. And I think it is nice to see when someone of a really old generation, like you were talking about with your grandma playing with, you know, her great grand, her grandson, her great grandson. I mean, it's nice to see. Hey, I'm not, I'm not putting anything in any ovens anytime soon, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's, it's a great bonding experience for them because they have a shared thing. Even if it's just, you know, a 15 minute memory um, mm-hmm. for when, you know, my cousin's all grown up. Um, so I, I, it's, it's funny because we've kind of been like dancing. We've been talking about different gaming cultures um, for the last 15 minutes or so because there really are multiple gaming cultures. Um, and I guess it's a question of whether or not we should ever talk about there being a overarching gamer culture when we have so many different ways to game and experience gaming now. Um, right. I mean, that that goes back to the whole idea of gaming being now mainstream as opposed to a niche group. Because, I mean, way back when gaming was 
especially home console gaming first was, you know, becoming to be a big deal. People thought it was going to be a fad. And then, oh, they're like, oh, well, maybe this is onto something once Nintendo started reaching huge success. And, you know, that, but well, it's, it's still. Like they were the first people to reach huge success. No, 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 no. But what I mean is when like the Atari first came out, people were like, this is amazing. But they were like, right. this is just a fad. Oh, and then right. once, once Nintendo released the like NES and the Super Nintendo that like it became like there was like a resurgence almost because there was like this void yeah, after the crash. Yeah, exactly. So that idea, but even when it came back as a resurgence, people still viewed it as this, you know, activity that mainly was for teenage young boys, you know, it's, it still was viewed as like this, you know, segment group that you normally would grow out of after a while, you know, and I think we've kind of, as a society, we've kind of gone back and forth on what we, who we think gaming should be for. And that's a whole other, you know, debate that has spawned, you know, like you said, Gamergate and everything. But yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because we were, we started by talking about casual versus hardcore. And I feel like those things are kind of inexorably intertwined with each other because you you just kind of have that whole distinction is kind of based on this false premise that it's important to prove who's more into something than someone else because that's all wrapped up in your like identity right as being right. like i'm the guy who got all the trophies and did all the things because i'm better than you Mm -hmm. right and right and it can be something this, to be proud there, of there, but... there are there are way better ways to measure how much better you are than someone than that i can think of at least 50 <laughs> <laughs> but they're measurable we're all about the metrics and i mean like you Just said measure dicks it's fine <laughs> <laughs> i mean and like you said kevin there there isn't anything inherently wrong with being proud of your whatever gaming accomplishments i mean yeah i agree yeah, no, I mean, I definitely know people who, like, know their max APM actions per minute in StarCraft and things like that. And they're, like, they train and actually, like, literally train their fingertips and minds to do more actions per minute than they did the year before. Amazing, but crazy. Right, it is. And, uh, like, you can objectively say that, like, this will not have huge bearing necessarily on the rest of their life. Then again, I know a guy who, in some ways like got the social connections that eventually got him a job through online gaming. Like he, he knew these people in real life as well, but their bonding experience for the most part, the most time they spent together was online playing league or Starcraft. Um, and that, and still remains a great bonding experience with a lot of his coworkers today. Arguably that's done as much or more for him than gaming will ever do for my life. But I can't help but admit that that's definitely changed the course of his life in a very measurable way. Um, because gaming is now a cultural exercise, the same as networking at a bar or something else like that. And I'm sure his girlfriend loves the finger training, too. <laughs> I'm sure she does. She's dated gamers most of her life, so it's, it, I, I think oh. she looked onto that trick early. And anyway, Bless her I, heart. Yeah. Well, and we love her. She's very tolerant of our foibles, um, like staying up all night and playing video games. I haven't done that in a really long time. 
what stayed up, up all night? I stayed up very late, but never not all night. Mm -hmm. You filthy casual. I have, I, have, <laughs> I have definitely done that several times in my life. And honestly, the funniest thing is the easiest way to do that now is oh, it's civilization. It's definitely civilization. There, there's a reason. One more turn is their slogan. It's amazing what a like time. Boy, isn't I, it? I swear that they have some sort of like time distortion field built into that game. I don't know how it works. Well, and when, when they took away, because there was a clock in Civ 4, I think, and they took it out for Civ 5, and I was like, this is dangerous. It was one of the first things I noticed in the new UI. I was like, oh, God, no. There's no clock. This is a terrible idea. <laughs> and, but I like how the game lets you set an alarm in the game for yourself. That's right, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it, the games are becoming self-aware. They know when they're too addictive. That's the real rise of the machines. I mean, well, the idea of addiction in gaming is basically the entire economy of the app store. I mean, that's no, that's totally true. That is the definition of freemium gaming, like is the idea of hooking someone into something that is somewhat entertaining to the point that they want to play it at first and then they realize oh no i have to wait now for this you know instant gratification i can't get that instant gratification so i'm gonna pay to get more and more and more and more that sweet sweet dopamine. yeah it's sort of interesting because i mean i feel like certainly some of those are kind of unethical in that way yeah but well, there, the there are there are there are free down, games. there are exactly. free games that you that are that you know that are free and have a model like that that I think are not exploitative and are good games. Right. No, I, I agree. I don't. I don't think there's. I again, I say this a lot, but I, um, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with uh, a game that is free to play and has in-game purchase. Yeah, purchasable content that. DLC, but when it's treated like, when, there's when, definitely ways it could be exploitative. Right, exactly. When when the in-game purchase purchasable content is meant to basically buy your way out of the awful game mechanics. Yes, <laughs> that's when right. it's a problem. Right, that's definitely like if it's designed to fail unless you pay. After addicting you, that's there. No, no one should consider that to be especially honorable. Um, and again, I make another reference to South Park. Basically, that have you, did you guys see that episode where they talk about the? It's like the uh, Canadian guys like developing this freemium game and. He's like the, I don't know. Did you, I'm assuming you no, haven't seen it. I, don't oh. I have not. My oh, it, it's, was off. Okay. You really have to see this one episode because they have this like, t they have two like couple minute long segments where they explain the entire industry of freemium games <laughs> to a T. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. They basically talk about how um, all freemium, a lot of those freemium games use gambling like the same mentality that casinos and mm -hmm. a, a, and other places you like that have gambling or you know that dopamine you know uh, the dopamine high 
business model yeah right exploiting exploiting that basically that you know they pull a lever to get stuff and then pay more money to get more stuff just keep you know pulling that lever to get more things and um it's exploitative like and 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 they're only making money off of a small percentage of people oh yeah but that small percentage makes them tons of money and it's and it's they're exploiting that small group of people who have no self-control and they know it and yeah that's that's the problem with freemium gaming gross yes vile it's it's how a whole bunch of industries work like the casino industry Right. Well, I was actually going to say it's like it's it, this is exactly why casinos are banned in so many states. Is yeah. the that are, it can't completely are wreck they, a life? Are they banned in so many states? Well, in some states, I feel like we've, blue we've, laws. We've, we've very quickly had a race to getting sweet, sweet tax dollars through casino gambling. Oh yeah, I guess we have. Yeah, might have been true in the old days. All of a sudden, too, which is really weird, because you know, forever and ever and ever, it was just Atlantic City and Vegas in this country, and then riverboats. But then suddenly, <laughs> Indian all the states just started legalizing them. Yeah. Well, I mean, are they part of gamer culture? Because it is—it's all games. Well, did Arguably you s- the older game, oldest games? I mean, did you see recently they announced um, the approval of using? sort of skill-based games oh, I in, see that. in casinos. So, I mean, I guess you can... Some people are like, well, you know, there already are skill-based games in casinos. Poker. I mean, that's yeah. a whole other argument. But um, I, I guess there, the implication is that games like Call of Duty or, you know, other action-type games that are very low skill... Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. That are very uh, that are much more reliant on skill and less on luck and you know chance. So uh, I, I I don't know how they're going to implement it because there obviously has to be a way for the casino to make money. Um, I don't know if they're just going to have pay per minute and then like the payout is based on how well you do and then like so if that. My understanding was that some of the things like that were things where it was more like like a like kind of like a carnival game where you need to beat an expert at something. Hmm. And so they just hire the expert and it looks like it would be easy, but it's not. Mm hmm. Because the expert makes it look easier than it is. Correct. Because he's very good at it. So. It is possible that you'll beat him, but it's not particularly likely. Like playing Mario Kart with some of our friends. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's interesting because this seems like, uh, obviously we're talking about one of the most heavily commercialized forms of gaming um, when we're talking about casinos, but there are now esports and things like that where there's similar level, not necessarily the same, but there's millions of dollars tied up in the Dota 2 championships or the StarCraft 2 finals every year or the League of Legends finalists. Um, and it's gaming as a competitive industry is now a huge deal, um, which, I don't know, it's, that's, we're, we're skipping ahead in our, our, our little agenda of things we can talk about. Um, but that's a, a change in gaming culture too, is that it's much more monetized than it used to be. There's just more money flowing into this chunk of the entertainment industry. 
It is true. Wasn't didn't that didn't that move win someone six million dollars yesterday? Or two days ago? Yeah, it was like it was like the sixty-five million dollar um something slam that it, it killed like most of the enemy team because it was perfectly timed or something. But you know like what's that. what's funny about that is that it's actually it was two moves because someone put a gif of that up today on Facebook and I said, I don't know enough about this to understand what's going on. It looks like some sort of death teleport. Is it a death teleport? And the explanation was it's both a death teleport and a giant ice block. So someone someone just threw a big ice ball and then someone death teleported on top and that's what killed everyone. So I can a- feel Sean's desire to explain all of this in immense detail from a mile away. I also I, I also hear Connor in the back of my head like yelling, be like, oh blah blah blah. <laughs> Well, that's their fault for missing out this week. Well, I understood, I understood well enough from having played other games like that, kind mm. of what was going on, but with no context, you're just kind of like, yeah, there sure are a lot of shiny explosions. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, I tried to play Dota, and it's just, I, I couldn't hold my attention, slash I was terrible at it, so. Right, it's got a steep learning. Try the Blizzard one, it's a lot more accessible. Yeah, yeah. marginally so, I guess. I don't know. I've, oh, I've way more Dota accessible. And- a more accessible yeah i think it's probably most accessible but i think no, it's just no item hasn't had as long to build so well no but i mean they're i feel like blizzard's what blizzard is really good at is taking something that someone else has made and making the best version of that like they didn't they didn't invent an mmo but they've made more money off of wow and it's gone on longer than any other one that i know of yeah, and they have, I think, probably the only real RTS e-game with StarCraft. Right, and they're doing this, and the, but again, they didn't make up RTSs. Nope. Just did it better. And yeah, or did it well, doing, well enough to doing the same thing. Kind of. And I mean, maybe not better, but mm-hmm. again, more accessible. Right. More interesting to a wider audience of people. They made it more casual, but not so casual that everyone hates it, who's super hardcore and needs to be hardcore and be the elitist badass on the planet and i'm gonna go pee now i'll be right back (laughs) bio break sponsor break (laughs) this episode is brought to you by squarespace half of the podcasts that i listen to are either either sponsored by squarespace or uh uh nature box (laughs) or i mean or, I, I, I'm not a regular podcast listener because I, I don't always have enough time. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I should be now that I, I realize that I have way more time at work and listening to things is not a terrible use of my bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I read about this on NPR that like the monetization of, or maybe it was the New York Times, that podcasts are being monetized by sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and people like are, maybe it was, it was discussing like, that the since podcasts are often so small, mm-hmm. the barrier between editorial content of like talking about things and the business side of things can get a lot fuzzier, um, because you know you, it's often a one or two person shop, and you can't knowingly like separate your advertising from your content, and that like is 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 there a, an ethical crisis for journalism here? Yeah, um, I, I I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on the podcast as well, but yeah, I mean, all of the ones that I've listened to are almost all of the ones that I've listened to. The hosts of the show 
like goes right into like the you know the advertisement and talks about it and talks about it in a very personal way that oh i've used this blah 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 and it's great and it's amazing and you know so it right and does that just does that like damage their editorial and their journalistic integrity mm-hmm. not if they say they're getting paid for it well yeah but it still feels dirty <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i mean i guess i i'm i like the fact that they're free so i'm like right i'm yeah. fine with listening that's to yeah i mean that's the whole appeal of freemium games too they're free you can start them instantly without forking over any money yeah easy entry to a broad little community that you can climb up to the apex of one way or another and yeah it's funny it's like there's so many different models of how one goes around building a gaming community around either a product or a style of gaming mm-hmm. um you know go broad and then let people skill up go broad let people pay to skill up mm-hmm. go like super uber hardcore and then somehow addict enough people that they still playing your game still play your game like eve online does you've seen you've seen the the chart showing like various skill learning curves for games and then the the awful maw of destruction the cliff of death around eve it's a, a beautiful image i suggest you look it up i think i have seen it um yeah i it just scares me i just avoid it altogether every pixel of it is true <laughs> uh yeah i mean i i just want to see more I, you know, I'm like I said, I'm I'm fine with freemium games. I just want to see more games that treat DLC as extra content, not oh, not like a required part of the game. Not a or, well, either that. You know, I, I'm fine. I'm fine with with making. I'm fine with making a game free and then saying, oh, here's the first chapter of it free, mm-hmm. and then pay you know 9.99 for the entire game for the game yeah i'm fine that's that's what they used to do yeah in the 80s and early 90s well that's and, what, and that's uh, what and that's what they did where it was yeah or and, demos and things like that mm-hmm. and then, i mean that's sort of what they did um in the beginning i think uh, in like the app store specifically because i i mean not that the app stores they're not that the app store is the only source of freemium games. I mean, there's a lot, there's a decent amount of free to play games, even on steam, but I mean, obviously it's the most wide use of free to play model. The free to play model is on apps. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just, I, I'm interested to see what Nintendo decides to use as their model because they've always been a company of creating large content, at a premium price um that's and now people get large content at freemium prices and mm-hmm. sometimes paying a lot more money just in smaller chunks mm-hmm. although i'd argue i don't know if it's necessarily large content um maybe that you i'd say it's the content in a lot of free-to-play games is extensive as far as time but not necessarily as far as depth. Yeah, I think that's generally true. Yeah, because a lot of free-to-play games rely on the wait for this amount of time to continue and then pay to you know get another life or just continue right away. 
Right. Um, Especially on on apps and um, mobile device gaming and stuff like that. Right. I mean, that's that's particularly what I'm talking about. Not not necessarily other free to play games like on Steam or whatever. But um, yeah, and that's just frustrating to me. I, I don't. I I want like a game that I can sit down and play. I mean. You can argue, though, that, well, if you're making an app for a mobile device, most likely the person is not going to be sitting down for a large amount of time playing on this device. So that's why they make games that are easy to play in short bursts of time. Right, and yeah. Keep... I mean, that's, a lot of Nintendo that, games that said, are... I, I own Final Fantasy V for iPad. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's no reason it has to be that way. I think that's just... That's one of those things that I think is interesting that... Yeah, it could be that way, but it doesn't mm-hmm. need to be. Right. I mean, I mean, one example that I think has been really popular that I'd say is not that not that model is Minecraft. I mean, that's a very mm-hmm. that's very true. that's yep. an extremely popular game that became extremely popular on the App Store, and that's not a free to play model game. That's you know you pay whatever eight dollars or whatever to download the game, and you have the full game. Um, and it's a game that you can play for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Um, if it's a game anyway. <laughs> yeah. But so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe Nintendo will bring some of that, you know, into the, into play on the app store, into mobile gaming in general. But unfortunately their first game that they're going to be releasing is basically just a puzzle and dragons game, Pokemon shuffle. Um, and that's basically just the same model of, you know, Candy Crush or whatever that you play levels and then you run out of lives and then you have wait a certain amount of time for the lives to regenerate. So unfortunately that's how that one works. I'm hoping though in the future that they'll release games like, I don't know, WarioWare, which are like just fun, weird, quirky games. Yeah, WarioWare would be really well suited. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, I think that fits mobile gaming perfectly because it's something that you can play in quick bursts, but it's still fun even over a longer period of time. Um, but uh, we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully they'll come up with something new and interesting. Well, and do you think it's going to change sort of Nintendo's apex position as a like fun for the whole party sort of gaming platform? Um, because I think that was something that the like used to be the N sixty four like stakeout um in the kind of the earliest phases of the console battles um and now it's it's much more a like literally the entire party from the grandmas down to the little kids can play with we use and things like that that make it much much more democratized gaming experience um and do you think that that's going to change are they targeting a different segment of the market now well, I mean, I actually argue that the Wii U is less of a family gaming console and more uh, of a refocusing on yeah, trying they tried, to. They tried to pivot back the other way. I exactly. Think. Yeah, I, I think that's that's been one of Nintendo's shortcomings is that they kind of go back and forth on this. They have this like kind of pendulum that they go back and forth on, where you know the Nintendo sixty four was something that was accessible, well, more accessible and be, was very mainstream and very popular when it came out, and then you know, the PlayStation came out and it started to, you know, people started to 
um and and the dreamcast as well and it was like you know kind of competing with those and then nintendo released the gamecube which kind of focused on tried to focus on like you know power and you know higher graphics not that it was the most powerful console when it came out uh, by any means that's not what i'm saying but it was more focused on you know ergonomic controller you know for long periods of play and just it wasn't as casual of a device and that GameCube didn't do so well in comparison to, I mean, the PS2 was extremely successful um, largely due to its, the fact that it had a DVD player was a huge thing like that. Yeah. They made a big blunder there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then they obviously had major, major success when they released the Wii. And that was largely due to the fact that it was so, easily accessible to anyone of any age because the controller was basically a remote control and everyone knows how to use a remote control. Yeah. Um, I feel like their most consistent problem, not always over time, but like they used to be good at this, but they have ceased to be good at it recently is that they don't, they don't, I mean, what's funny is that they're always, profitable Mm -hmm. and that's that's what's from that's what i think is really remarkable is that most of the other just about every other time people have made dedicated gaming devices consoles what have you they always view them as sort of like loss leaders to licensing agreements which is strange um but nintendo never does that they always make a console they make a profit on as far as i understand yeah i mean they're very very intriguing they're very conservative with right. uh, with their releases. So, I mean, it, it's both good and bad. It's good for them because they do make a profit on their hardware. But I think they miss seeing the big picture because... Yeah, sometimes I agree with that. Because the problem with having a console that is reliant on a profit for the hardware is that you don't get a large install base. When you price your console, when you price your... Th- your handheld device, your handheld console at $300, which is, I think, I believe the ent- the price of the 3DS when it first came out. I mean, that's not an easily accessible price. Um, yeah, people sometimes pay less than that for a smartphone upgrade when they go and exactly. So. Um, and, and also the fact of, uh, and also the fact that con- that smartphones became a big deal you know around the time that the you know that the 3ds came out um me a little bit before that but you know it's it's made handheld gaming a lot more niche um i hope it doesn't go away but what i was gonna say though was that i think we we sort of got onto a different topic of that which is fine i was mm -hmm. was interesting um i was thinking though that the thing that I've seen them do the past several generations not very well is that they don't get enough people who aren't them <laughs> to make high quality software for their hardware. Yeah. So it's all well and good to have a console that you turn a profit on and that's cool because it means your company still makes money and that's fine. And I wouldn't say they don't need to do that, but you have to get, enough stuff that encourages people to buy it in the first place 
And they, right. Everyone they needs haven't, to they haven't, been, they haven't been the best about that. Yeah, they're very controlling, and so yeah. they are very hesitant to have anyone else develop for them. Um, they've right. they've they've gotten a little bit better over the years. They have Retro Studios. They have a few other um, groups that develop for them, but in general, they're very much in-house developers solely that they developed they their used to let people do it all the time i mean the snes and the nes had all kinds of crazy nonsense on mm-hmm. them but that was largely because they had such a huge market share um yeah now the the fact and like this goes back to the whole idea of pricing everything at such a high price i mean part of the appeal of the wii was that it was very cheap mm-hmm. um when you price something That's very true, yeah. competitive it was the cheapest in its generation when you price something very competitively a lot of people you know, a lot of quote unquote casual gamers will want to purchase that because it's easy to purchase. It's a lot more affordable. And when you get a large install base, then you get a lot of third parties flocking to your console saying, Hey, mm-hmm. you have a lot, you have a large install base. I want to develop for your console. Cause I, that's how I'm going to get the most amount of potential customers for, you know, that's how I'm going to get the most sales by developing for your console. Um, and then that was a huge issue with, the Wii U is that, I mean, they don't have a large install base, partly because it wasn't priced extremely competitively and partly because it was horribly marketed and horribly named. And I mean, I mean, there's just lots of little things I can go into about why the Wii U isn't the success that it could have been, but, um, well, Not- and now for handhelds, there's also the, the competitive disadvantage of fighting the Android and Apple market. Mm-hmm. Because why develop for Nintendo when you could get literally millions of people, billions of people now in some cases? Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, another thing is it all depends on what you <laughs> want to do, too, as the person who makes the games. Like, if you're Squaresoft or Squeenix, I guess they are now, Square, whatever they are. Square Enix. Whatever they've decided to be. What once was. I think they just called themselves Square now, but whatever. No, 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 it was Square and then uh, Enix, right? And then they merged to be Square Enix. Right? They were Square. Did they rebrand again? They were definitely Square Enix for a while. Uh, They've they've been Square Enix for years. I I think, like, years and years ago, they used to be two separate companies. Oh, no, they were. I I remember that. I remember when they merged well. Mm -hmm. I, I. I'm old enough for that. <laughs> um, but, no, it's interesting because, like, you know, if you're them, right, and you want to make Final Fantasy XV, you're, you're not going to make that on the, the Wii U because it, it's not powerful enough, right? So there are lots of things that go into what people do and, and how they do it, you know? So mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing. I think there, in a perfect world, there'd be room for all these different models of stuff, but you have to have some model, <laughs> that you've picked for your product or else it's not going to work out very well. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, and Nintendo is obviously targeted console gaming and handheld gaming and other companies just don't have any interest at all in that market. They stick to just PC games or just mobile games or, you know, just a particular brand of console games. Mm-hmm. And it's it, in many ways, it's a free, uh, you know, free colossal market in that sense, which is generally not terrible for gamers as the consumer. Because um, you got the specialists in whatever niche you like, but in Nintendo's case, it can mean sort of a, a narrow fan base too, a narrow base of games and gamers, because it's it becomes a self-selecting cycle there. Right, and I mean that's what the rumors. That's why the rumors are about the NX are surrounding the fact that it's potentially going to be some sort of hybrid device. 
Um, and so there's a lot of hype about that and about are they trying to compete with the iPad and or a mobile phone? What exactly is this going to be? Is it going to be a handheld device that of console quality in hardware and specs? I mean, that's that's the rumor, and I honestly don't know how successful it could be. I mean, in on one hand, I don't think Nintendo is capable of doing it, not because they're you know not intelligent enough or whatever, but I don't think that the that creating a handheld device of hardware quality specs is going to be at an affordable price. Um, and I don't think Nintendo would try to create a device that is priced too high and is something that isn't a family device. I don't know how you want to call it, but um, I just don't think the, I don't think that we're there yet as far as technology and the price of that technology. Um, I don't know. I don't know how it's also going to fit in with their mobile strategy because now that they are going to be developing games for mobile devices, I don't know. Are they going to be competing amongst themselves? Are they, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. It's a good question. Well, it's hard. I mean, it is there. There's, huge chunks of money and attention and you know specific game cultures and trying to appeal to multiple ones with one strategy or one console mm. is really hard yeah because it's funny even though there are, it's much easier to po- to port console games to pc games and vice versa in some ways there's a, a huge split fan base between you know the pc master race and you know console gamers um is a huge thing more so on the internet than not but there's a definite cultural difference there that if you develop for one or both or like just one or the other without the intent to port um you can really piss off a dedicated core of you know mm-hmm. you certainly gamers can the other yeah and I, I i guess i don't there's not unfortunately a correct answer in any of it it's all humans man (laughs) (laughs) why haven't we figured this shit out yet Mm, i don't know we've been arguing about stuff since we came off the savannah i don't think we're gonna stop anytime soon we will in a hundred billion years when the universe dies its heat death no we'll probably be arguing about what we could have done better the entire time Mm -hmm. that's that's a lot of different grudges you can build up in a hundred billion years Mm-hmm. Um, just says something terrible about the state of humanity, I think. Um, but kind of going back to like the different cultures of different platforms, um, it's been interesting for me because I've I've been a PC gamer, on like within the realm of video games, a PC gamer only for about five years or so since I moved out of college, um, and lots of access to a TV and other people's consoles. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And so for me, I've been witnessing sort of a, a, the gaming renaissance of, you know, this last half decade strictly from the perspective of, oh, my God, I don't remember when Steam wasn't a primary gaming utility. Like it, it stopped online gaming piracy more or less in its tracks in the United States and now has copycats and all of the other developer stores and stuff like that. But that 
it's been a very different experience for console gamers that I just am not even aware of if it weren't for forums talking about gaming, um, where I kind of catch whiffs of like, wow, this is completely different on the other side of the fence that I'm just not aware of. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I, th- I think the success of Steam has allowed for people to become PC gamers a lot easier now. Oh yeah, for sure. I I would I had more or less. I was never super big into PC. I liked point-and-click adventure games back in the day. Mm-hmm. And there's the fact that then for a while everything was first-person shooting only, and God, I suck at that. Yeah, um, same. But I feel yeah, you guys. <laughs> it, it, it got me back into playing PC games because it was easy to navigate and deal with, and, you know, you could see lots of different types of stuff and... So yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And and I think because people have gotten so used to being able to purchase apps at such a low price, Steam kind of follows that similar model and that it has a lot of sales and like, oh look, this is only this is like 80% off and it's only yep. 4.99 for this game, this full-fledged game, you know, like Skyrim is only ten dollars you know i can buy this entire big game for such a low price i mean people are very rarely buy a new thing from steam (laughs) yeah i I mean people have gotten so spoiled in that regard that they expect tons of content for basically no money Mm -hmm. even if it's old content i mean i i i've also bought the five dollar skyrim um because for me when it came out skyrim was just not I was like, okay, whatever. I'm not terribly. I, I wasn't. Yeah, not I, worth hadn't it. The, I hadn't played the Elder Scrolls games before, so I wasn't mm-hmm. a fanboy. Right. So, for they were capturing me as part of the long tail when they when they sold it for five dollars, and also catching you know the people who were like I refuse to pay full price for any game, um, but there's still kind of a common gamer culture about it, even though often like the larger a large chunk of the community will not buy a game when it first comes out um just like there's a large chunk of the community that will absolutely buy into pre-alpha access for in development AAA games or be willing beta testers flinging themselves on the body of their favorite ip so i don't know it's it's an interesting place we've arrived at for pc gaming mm-hmm. yeah i and then and then you come to the uh, another first world problem where you ha- you've bought so many games on sale that you haven't played over th- three quarters of your library. That is like true, I've I, I do not have that problem as bad as some other people, but it's definitely a thing. Yeah, I mean my my thing is that I've been I have bought a lot of games on uh, humble bundles, um, which are great because you pay you know like twelve dollars and you get nine games of varying quality but i mean usually <laughs> i mean true. usually like a couple of them are good are like really good so i'm like oh well, that's a good deal i mean you can pay you name your price and um and part of it goes to charity and you're like yay i feel good about myself and i got a good deal and then so you flush out your library with tons of games that you're like oh, i'll play that at some point and then you never do yeah that's why i don't look at the there was one year where i went like not super buck wild, but fairly buck wild during like the seems nude theme summer sale. Buck wild nude. <laughs> yeah. Not, yep. Mm-hmm, that kind. Of, mm, uh, it's a, it's quite a show. Um, 
and since then I just are you, are you, are you nude this week? Because you said you were I'm, nude last week. I am not nude. <laughs> I am not. Um, but yeah, so that now I just try to I try to avoid those podcast. crazy sales unless there's something specific that I know that I am interested in, and then I just look around to see when that's on the biggest sale and buy it. Mm-hmm. So like the last time they had the sale, I had like five dollars left over from gift cards people gave me for Christmas, and I was like, oh, I'm finally gonna get the Batman game, and I did. Yeah. Which so I played it, but I didn't pay anything for it because it was. Yeah, Ar- Arkham mm-hmm. is also on my two playlist. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're we're guilty together, Mike. Don't worry. Oh, so guilty. <laughs> <laughs> and I I think the whole PC console gaming argument is interesting, especially now that you know Oculus and VR is you know a buzz in the news and is going to. I, I don't know what exactly it's going to mean, how successful it's actually going to be. I, I've i stated this before, not necessarily on this podcast, but um, I don't think we're there yet for VR to take off, even though people are like, oh, wow, this is really impressive. I, I just, I still don't feel like we're there yet. Um, well, I think that the issue is still in many ways cultural. Um, mm-hmm. in the sense that people aren't ready for VR, whether or not the tech is ready for them. Because I think we, we're reaching the point where um, I'm pretty sure the tower I have under my desk here can handle an Oculus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's got a, it's, I think, a one-year-old video card that was relatively robust when I bought it. Oh, God, one-year-old. I know, right. Filthy casual, we've been here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and, and, you know, it's... It, has enough RAM and enough um, gigahertz on the CPU that I, I feel comfortable stating it can probably do at least moderate or low graphics on a VR rig. Um, but there's no point if there's nothing developed for it. Right. Um, and if no one's developing for it because they don't have faith in the technology or faith in people being there to buy it, it there's not going to be a market for it and the whole thing will fall flat on its face. And I, I, I think feel like it's interesting and hard to measure that stuff because, and we talked about this before we really got started, this is at least the third or fourth go around with this that I can remember in my own lifetime and maybe there were ones before that. And I just decided to check while you were talking, Kevin. Not that what you were saying wasn't interesting, but it's good <laughs> to have your facts straight. The episode of Murder, She Wrote, where Jessica Fletcher is in her VR version video game of one of her novels, and there's a murder at the VR company, was in 1993. Okay, but I was born at the time. Yes. Yeah, 20 (laughs) 20 plus years ago, Angela Lansbury, with her VR goggles on, was there because it was going to revolutionize the world then. Welp. (laughs) Right, well, and Google Google Glass has made that bet and then didn't necessarily flop or at least google has insisted it wasn't a flop um (laughs) and you know you you've got things like that and augmented reality and a lot of research like on in academic institutions going into building the right underlying technology to make it work and that's kind of been on a slow burn for 20 years like a lot of really awesome computer technology like wi-fi which now is utterly ubiquitous was absolutely a lab project for decades um, that really only dedicated like radio people and like signals people knew and understood. Um, and now it's in every smartphone everywhere because it's so useful. 
And the question is when or if VR is coming out of that phase of development. Because um, no developer wants to be the schmuck who developed for you know, the VR handset that didn't become the iPhone. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, and that's why everyone's trying to like place bets on like, oh, is the Oculus going to be the one? Is the is Vive going to be the one? Is you know Morpheus going to? I honestly don't think any of them are the it device yet. I don't think we're there yet. I, I mean, my my whole issue with VR is is still the fact that your sensory input is not matching your visual, you know, input. Like it's just no matter how good your headset is going to be how good the lenses are, how good, you know, the resolution is of your, you know, 5k display, whatever it, it's not going to be able to match your, the sensory input. And so the VR experience is not going to be engaging and you're, you're going to want to reach out. You want to reach out and like grab an object and interact with it. Like you, you can't do that. I mean, we're not in the matrix. Like we can't, You know, it's not, we, we're not able to like plug in and like, you know, just feel everything like it's happening to us in reality, but it's not, I, I mean, it's, it's just, we're not, I, I don't know if we ever will come up with like an easy solution for that, but um, I mean. Right. And I think there's definitely an element of the perfect being the enemy of the good because so many of us will have exposure to like the science fiction cyberpunk realm of mm-hmm. what it could be. Um, absolutely want that experience and hype it up and right. under are underwhelmed and uh, like kill the product before it has a chance to live. This right. has happened before too. Yeah. Um, but there's no real way to chain those pressures in a way that is productive instead of, you know, boom and bust cycle for some poor developer who thinks, yes, yes, I've really got it and I've worked hard. And, mm-hmm. you know, Oculus has lots of great non-gaming um, Oculus and the other VR sets have great non-gaming implementations as well now, which I think is a promising sign in some mm-hmm. sense, and that they've they've found other things about it that are useful beyond just the gaming niche. Mm-hmm. It, you know when I will know that it's going to succeed? How? Sex. There oh. was a. Oh, it was Google Glass. I think it was had a sex app. Then they closed it down in in their like the little the, in the little developer walled garden. Um, then they have when, they when they also had like a porn parody. Gets onto it. That's that's when I'll know that VR is here to stay. Well, didn't yeah, they, every they, medium wins when the porn company that's chooses right. it. Mm-hmm. Well, it was funny. I think they had a porn parody of using Google Glass. Like they filmed like a porn scene using Google Glass. <laughs> yeah, and then it got them banned and their dev kit, their dev rights revoked, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. It was very controversial in this <laughs> pearl clutching way. Um but I mean Oculus already has I mean like some some developers I believe are already working on sex apps or whatever. I, I'm sure when it comes really? out there will already be like one or two. I have no I I'm not following them but um I'm sure they will exist when it comes out. And I mean, I, I, when I said, you know, oh, we're not there yet, I don't mean to, you know, knock those developers who are working on the Oculus or the oh, yeah. or Morpheus. I mean, I, I, I am excited to see them, what they come out with. I just, you know, I just, I don't think we're there yet. We're not We've been at hurt before. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I am always, I'm always going to be cautious about my um, optimism yeah managed enthusiasm yeah i mean it just 
I, I mean, I'm not expecting matrix level ever, like in my, not even in my lifetime, I probably I will never expect that. But what I am hoping is something a little bit more engaging than basically, I, I, I guess just a, you know, all around panoramic display is like how I feel like it is. I mean, there's more to it than that, obviously. Like, you know, it's, there's head tracking involved and there's, you know, there are interesting input methods that, you know, like the steam controllers seem kind of cool. Like it can move, measure like where your, where your fingers are and some, you can do some finger gestures and that sort of thing. And, um, that's cool. I, I guess it's just, it's always it's always the tactile. I mean, that's an issue. You always you want to reach out and grab an object, and you can't do that. And also, yeah. and also the fact that you won't be able to see others easily. Like, I mean, creating other players visually in a virtual space is going to be difficult as well. I mean, if you like, if you wanted to create like some sort of MMO virtual reality thing, you know, it, it'd be hard to do, hard to implement. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because we're, we're we're talking about like the the tactileness of a game and the uh, like level of imagination that goes into not only planning all of this and it's it's triggering in my mind so much of the talk about what people consider the best and worst things about tabletop RPGs. Um, <laughs> nice, uh, nice, <laughs> nice, nice transition segue, there. Right, I am I am on it tonight um, because. In many ways, it is entirely like tactile. You you either you draw the map or are like throwing the dice around and pointing at people and telling them what to do or acting something out. And right. I've, I've played and DM, so I feel confident speaking for the entire genre now. And someone is definitely going to make me regret saying that at some point. Um, but it's it's interesting because you have to imagine the immaterial. Com- like you're you're sitting around with your friends and flinging Cheetos at each other, not fireballs. <laughs> but if you are enjoying, if you're if you're trying to enjoy the game, that is the the at a certain point you have to not just give up the sort of suspended disbelief, but actively imagine what it looks like in your head, kind of within the range of what everyone else is thinking, and have a shared experience in a way that a VR handset is like promising in a very limited sense. Even the most advanced and overpromised. VR headsets are kind of only like eh, touching that tangentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's one of the huge appeals of tabletop and board games is the tactileness of it. I mean, the fact that you can feel those coins that you're making money from, you know, Oh, oh yeah. Give me the, the, and give me that, you know, that coin that's mine, you know, and you can feel the, the pieces and you can look at the board and, you know, move around it and, you know, see, see it from different angles. And that's, I think that's because it's so present there right in front of you. That's like part of its huge appeal, I think. And also the social aspect. I think the fact that you're all in the same room, you know, you're looking at each other, you're interacting face to face with other people is what's interesting, what's fun about that too. You know, you can, you know, point fingers and yell at other people, you know, and, you know, get get in you know excited about whatever is happening in, in your game and i think vr has the potential to for that i think maybe augmented reality might be one way of sort of getting around this issue of tactile yeah, tactile that. versus you know virtual uh, like it, if you have 
like let's say you, I mean you could have some sort of board game with little markers on it and the augmented reality headset could enhance it you know it, it could mm-hmm. maybe make it more interactive and you know I I think that way you'd be able to at least pick up an object and sort of feel it and you know you wouldn't lose that sensation because you're actually holding something um that might be one way i mean i think that's what microsoft is kind of trying to like advertise its hololens like as being this really cool uh minority report type device where you're you know looking around at like all these you know reports and weather and you know this minecraft mini minecraft thing on your tabletop and it's like oh look i can just like you know, play Minecraft on my table. And it's like, oh, look how, you know. And so I think it's trying to promise a lot of what, you know, the Oculus and other VR headsets aren't offering is that, you know, you feel engaged with that virtual, you know, experience because it's part of your actual reality. Um, But I, I... I have actually one of my coworkers has tried the HoloLens. He went, he was in Seattle um, at a conference and, uh, and, you know, I've seen the demo for it and everything and it. It's cool, but the field of view is actually very limited. So you don't actually see like your entire peripheral vision of mm. like augmented reality. So that's one limitation. And another limitation is just the interface. I mean, you're kind of like, hovering your finger in front of whatever you're looking at you just like make a tapping motion to like select something and i mean it kind of is useful but i mean you you don't it's again not really tactile and kind of i would i could imagine difficult to use for something that's more complex than just clicking buttons and links you know yeah I feel like one of the best uses for augmented reality sort of things would be for those sort of like tabletop war games, mm-hmm. like Warhammer, where it could show you distances and things. Yeah, that would be really cool. I, I intelligent. Yeah, like keep track of what it moved and what hadn't, or something like that. You know, there'd be all kinds of neat things you could do with that. Yeah, or like a tabletop version of um, Fire Emblem, or mm-hmm. you know, yep, that kind oh, of. Th- yeah, I mean, it would be- I'm sure that if augmented reality becomes more dev kit accessible to a a wider base that apps for that will absolutely grow in because Mm -hmm. there are a huge number of apps for for managing D&D which is a much less intensive and much or I should say much more freeform and harder to categorize style of game than things like Warhammer Mm -hmm. so what what was what was your question about why or or are tabletop rpgs games like what what i mean i would never i would never me no 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 not you kevin he wrote that in the topic mike and i have it's it's because it's because of me oh yeah because we we was it was this weekend in passing we were talking about it um because mike said that he didn't consider rp tabletop rpgs um to be games in the platonic sense i guess the platonic sense. Oh, what are you, what are you, you doing with your other games? For the audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if I remember right, you you said it was because of the freeform nature of the challenges. In yeah, they don't. It doesn't. It's not a game for a similar but different to me 
right? I don't think of them as games. That is is not does not diminish in any way their value. No one write me angry emails to the address you don't have. Um, you know, they're great, and I'm glad people love them, and I think they're wonderful, and they're so creative, and they can be so interesting. But to me, they're one of the areas where, like, the definition of what is a game kind of comes up. Because to me, a game needs to have more definition to it kind of and a good way to explain that would be probably to explain what i sort of think of a tabletop rpg as which is uh i once heard it those things called uh kind of like interactive group storytelling and i feel like that's a really good description of what you're doing but it's I mean, I know a, a DM who's used that line to pick up chicks, so I think... Yeah, it, it's not... Right, it's, it's not a game because there's it no... It works, too! Everyone was very surprised. There's there's no goals given for you from the outside. There are no... It's almost like there are no constraints, uh, as we were talking about when we talked about this before, Kevin. You know, there's... The player can say, like, I want to try and seduce the black dragon, and you're like okay and then you have to roll for it and you see what well, happens or or more it's like tell me how on earth you would seduce this thing that's literally 30 times your size right. and i'll tell you what to roll or right. things like I that know. yeah right. and it, um but that just sort of seems it, it just sort of violates my sense of what is a game it's and similarly i don't think minecraft is something i would call a game either um because it's it's like a sandbox of creativity, and that's super cool and super interesting if you're into that. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't call it a game. Yeah, I mean, I would call it more of a virtual toy, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's a fine description, but not a game. That's an excellent description, actually. Um, however, I, I guess I'd, I'd sort of argue that a tabletop RPG is still a game in the sense that you have some sort of set of rules even if they are very vague and some somewhat undefined in certain areas you do have a set of rules you have these dice that you're rolling to you know figure out your actions and the effects of certain things and um you're interacting with a story that you know the outcome is changed to be you know the outcome is different based on your decisions um, yeah, well, I, I certainly think it's a lot closer. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, what would you, what would you, how would you exactly define a game then? What is your definition of a game? Well, we've kind of stumbled mm-hmm. over it a little mm-hmm. bit, I think. But if there are yeah. rules, there's there's a game. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I honestly, I almost feel like someone has to win or lose for it to be a game. Interesting. Well, and it's funny because I, I have a DM who says he doesn't consider himself successful as a DM unless his party has tried to kill each other um, somewhere in the apex course of the game. Um, he's a very challenging DM, but we love him because he's actually really good at making us want to kill each other before the apex of the game um, because he's given us enough differential information and differential reasons to be there as players, um, or I should say as for our characters. Um, that we can have legit, really distraught conversations in character about what the right course is. 
Um, he's also a big fan of like lose-lose conditions, it's where you have to choose the least of possible evils in one way or another. Um, and that's a completely legitimate style of play for a tabletop RPG. Um, you know, maybe less so for like a My Little Pony tabletop RPG, if such a thing were to exist. Um, but for you D&D... You'd make it. Like, you'd make a lot of money. I, I'm not sure. I, would lap it up. I, I'm not sure I'd feel comfortable using or spending that money, though, so that kind of defeats the point. Um, not not to brawny shame anyone, if they're listening, that's that's not my place. But, um, yeah, I, I, think that, I think that it's an interesting idea that the rules make the game, but also that the winners and losers can make a game. Because a game where everyone loses sometimes can be just as much fun as a game where everyone wins. Sure, I didn't say that you... I didn't mean that... They needed to be in opposition to one another, not that like it needs to be the case that a person wins and a person loses. Pandemic is still a game, and that's right. everyone wins or everyone loses. Right, but there has to be a binary condition. Is your is your limit? So that's the two. Your second limit on there, the definition of a game is there. There, there needs there needs to be win loss conditions. Hmm. That and no win loss sliders, no partial victory. Um, yeah, I guess so. Okay. I mean, it's an interesting limit. I mean, uh, but then, I mean, I mean, what would you consider arcade games to be? I mean, arcade games are basically, you just have a score and it's like, okay, how long can uh, you, you go? Like the old school, like endless ones, well, you, but you still die eventually. Yeah. No, but then how do you no win? How do you win that game? You can't win a arcade game. There's no way to win. I mean, certain games, yes. There are certain there are certain arcade games where you can, you know, beat the last stage of it. Yeah, and it's like you, you win. But you can lose. Yes, you can lose, but you can't always win. Does that is that still a game? So yeah, you would play to lose I mean, the least hard way, like my friend's tabletop RPG sessions. But but in that, it, I feel like that's. I mean, I know what you're saying, but in that case, right? Then you're trying to beat yourself bull or yourself or something like that yeah know? i guess i still lose mm-hmm. yeah you're trying to beat the high score in that condition but i mean like what if it's the first time you've played or anyone's played there's no high score well then you play to be able to write first in you know <laughs> yeah but you, i mean you can't Excuse win me, you play to write ass <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you can't win i mean i guess you can write ass or you know whatever but can't. I mean, it seems as juvenile victory to us, but you know, yeah. obviously, people do it. So yeah, I didn't say some... I had a perfect definition, and I think again, going tying back way to the beginning when we talked about linguistics for a minute, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, definitions are difficult things, but they're very useful, and they have to have some kind of boundaries on them, or they become meaningless, and the words are pointless, and. You know, whatever my internal model of game is, those are things that it seems like are very important. This idea of winning and losing or winning mm. and losing conditions um, and also a relatively tight set of rules and structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and without those two things, it doesn't seem to sort of meet my game sense. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and with a different definition of game we're not necessarily operating in mutually exclusive zones there, but I would consider RPGs gaming. Um, sure, and I'm, I don't begrudge you for having a different opinion than me. Because we're all respectable adult human beings, um, unlike people who stand on certain debate stages in Ohio. Um, 
not that we shame anyone for any political decisions whatsoever, but, um, you know, we, we still can be gamers even if we play games that the other might not consider to be canonically their, like, definition of a game. Um, like, earlier we were talking about how, uh, this was, I think, before we started recording, how some of my gamer friends say that there, there's the holy trifecta of types of gamer, that if you are a video game board and card game and tabletop RPG player, all three, or at least in some like level of competency or enjoyment of all three types, you are you hit the you know the whole trifecta and you're the unicorn like can hang out in any particular gaming situation sort of thing, um, which for me was the first time I'd ever formulated it that way. But it gets back to this sort of fractured idea of what being a gamer is because for them that's like the whole package you got it all and we've spent an hour talking about the various kinds of video gamers and whether or not one can be considered a true gamer one way or another with those relatively niche chunks of what being a gamer is and i don't know if i had a point <laughs> <laughs> but i talked a lot <laughs> yeah that's all that's important. We were just talking, you know. I bet half the people listening to this aren't even paying attention right now. It's fine. They're busy doing something else, you know. God, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the great things about that's the great thing about podcasts is that you can multitask and not pay attention to it sometimes. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you can. It's true. I was thinking about before we had our technical difficulties not necessarily paying attention while i was doing it to see what that would have what would happen then <laughs> <laughs> so i mean getting back to the actual subject of the podcast um we talked a lot about how the rules of the of, of how various types of things start influencing the culture of gaming but we haven't talked necessarily about what i think to be one of the biggest deltas between what what a gaming culture is like in the sense that a collaborative game gaming culture can be very very different than a competitive gaming culture mm -hmm. um because i've played like free-to-play mmos where it's only player versus environment in a team um and it in many ways incentivized collaborative people go together and play together vice you know deathmatch everyone for themselves must kill pvp sorts of games um and i guess i don't i don't know how much experience you guys might have with the difference in player culture um that can grow up around different sorts of games because of the rules of the game or the way it's structured yeah i mean honestly i i don't know at first i was going to say that i feel like collaborative games have a sort of incentive for people to continue to come back because they have other people that are relying on them or other people who are pushing yeah, them. But at the same time, there's lots of competitive games that continue to be extremely popular like Dota. Um, but at the same time, those are still, there is still an element of collaboration in that, you know. They're team-based. Right. And, you know, or you could say, like, a game like Mario Kart or Smash Brothers, you know, is very competitive. Or StarCraft. Or StarCraft or something like that is very popular. And, um, but I think even when something is 
very competitive. It's always it's it's always bringing people back because they are interacting with someone else. They are either rubbing it in someone else's face that look, I, you know, <laughs> was so much better than you or, you know, they are just enjoying sharing the experience together. I think that's like when games are at its are at their best and at their most addictive is when you're able to like, you know, share the experience and not not to say that I do not enjoy for, you know, solo experiences cuz I really do. I really enjoy like first person games that not I'm sorry. Better not shooters. Uh yeah, <laughs> what I meant to say was I really enjoy um single player games that are very base they're very heavy on you know narrative and very heavy on a soul experience for one person um oh yeah there's some of my favorites too i i'm with you 100 percent. right but I, I think those games are not the ones that keep you coming back they're amazing but they're like i i don't know they're like a they're like a, a good book yeah, they're like in a really good book, like something that you could play again, you could go back to and revisit, but it's not something you're going to go back to constantly. It's not something right, that that's true. You know, it's something but that you want to put. Do reread books, and I definitely have replayed long games like that. Right. I mean, it's something that you want to put back on your shelf and revisit, but not right away because you don't want to. Mm-hmm. You don't want to ruin the experience. You kind of like it's kind of it kind of sits with you, and you you really enjoy it, and you talk about it with other people. I mean, I think that's ideally like the best you know first player experience one the best single player experience i keep saying first player the best single player experience is when uh you have a game that really sinks in with you and sticks with you and maybe you're able to talk about it with other people or um or it affects you know how you see a different game or another story yada yada yeah, I mean, people talking about their specific playthroughs in Mass Effect 3 is a huge part of a conversation with PC gamers all the time. Is You're like, oh, did you know this happened? What did you do with Morden? What did you do with this choice? Oh, well, in my game, I had made that choice earlier, which meant I never had to make that choice and things like that. And it's a huge part of the bonding experience around a game that you literally cannot play with another person. Right up until that ending where none of it matters. Yeah, I didn't. Re- oh, that was a sore spot. I really should have. That. <laughs> I I had made myself forget. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an interesting thing because that I guess there's a, a a third leg to that then between collaborative and competitive gaming. There's the the solo experience. Mm-hmm. And I think most people experience all three. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. And I mean, I I. I I think my opinion is maybe a little biased. I mean, I think that's that's how I feel about gaming, but I think the way you your style of play and what you enjoy most is really going to depend on your personality. And I think that there are certain people who are just way more competitive and really enjoy and thrive that's off really and really enjoy yeah. and thrive off of that, you know, defeating other people or you know, increasing their skill level to say, look, I am superior to all of these people or, you know, I really the honorable opponent or whatever. Yeah. Right. And, um, and then there are some people like myself who either aren't very good at those competitive games or (laughs) don't really thrive off of, you know, I'm like, 
you know, if I were to beat someone in a game, probably not, you know, a game like Dota or Call of Duty, but, you know, another game, some other competitive game, you know, like Smash or Mario Kart or, or you know, some sort of strategy game, I do enjoy it. I mean, obviously there is some, like, thrill in winning, but I guess that's not the thing that keeps me coming back to play a game, typically. But I think that's just my personality. I think that's just how I am. I think that's probably true because I feel like I'm sort of in the middle between the two extremes where, like, I Mm -hmm. like it for itself, but I also really like winning. (laughs) So I mean, yeah, I think everyone likes winning. I don't think anyone dislikes. It's frustrating when you, like, don't do well. (laughs) Yeah. No, it is very frustrating. That's why I I hate. That's why I really don't like a lot of competitive games just because I'm not good at them, and I, I don't have... I like I I don't have the patience or I don't you know like when other people are just bashing me about how (laughs) terrible I am and how much I suck so I just get frustrated and just you know forget trying to get better at a competitive game so but I do I mean similar pressures with collaborative gaming because I've played a few like you know four-person pve or p-verse scenario mm -hmm. um games and if you are the inadequate person that the other people have to take care of you feel terrible um because you feel like they have to kind of babysit you the entire mm-hmm. way through a situation you should be able to contribute to solving instead right but i feel um, like in that situation you at least have like a better chance of not being the bottom person <laughs> you know what i mean you just all you have to do is be better than the worst person and then you're okay because you're at least like in the middle of the team you're like you're contributing something you know <laughs> We, we knew that gaming was always gay. We bottom shame there, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. I, I, think I feel like that was the first gay comment we made. This is actually one of the least gay episodes, I feel like, that we've ever had. I stopped Aww. myself from making some of them. I almost made an Ethel Merman joke earlier. Why? Why would you stop yourself? <laughs> well, the time passed. Stop censoring I, yourself, Mike. I, this didn't, is... I didn't want to interrupt you just for the okay. sake of Ethel Merman. <laughs> I'm not that gay. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. If you want well, to know what uh, it was, curious listener, you could go back and try and guess. <laughs> <laughs> we have replay value in our episodes. Mm-hmm. We do indeed. Go hunt. Go hunt for the potential gay jokes all throughout. Yes. The, where the, the where was the, podcast? Where was the Ethel Merman joke opportunity? If Michael doesn't edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I think that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, thank you so much to Kevin and Mike for joining me this week. You're so you. welcome. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at thegamerspodcast at gmail.com. Also, like us on our Facebook page. Is that a thing? That is a thing. I just created it today. Oh. <laughs> Ooh, fancy. Yay. Um, so feel free to post any suggestions on our Facebook page as well.